Well, uh, as we start, let's just... Um, I know we already did this last week, but I'm just going to uh, give a reminder. So tonight we're in this kind of last stretch, looking at the already and not yet. Uh, next time, I think next time, I'm really looking forward to next time. Because even though it's relevant to the series that we've been doing, it's also just going to be great for just uh, general knowledge of Christian faith and what our actual hope is anyway. Because we're going to be looking at what happens when we die. So talking about heaven talking about hell, talking about Jesus coming back, th- those kind of things. So um, I think that's going to be a... I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one, and I think that'll be a great one. I think a lot of people will benefit from it. Um, so that'll be good. Um, and then we'll yeah, deal with the book of Revelation, and then we'll kind of wrap up the whole series. Um, but tonight is one that I'm really excited for, and it's, in a sense, this is one that we've been working to over the last few months. So you'll probably hear things again, but also I think it will click a lot of things in. So I think this is an important one. So already not yet. So let's just, uh, I've got some books to recommend, but I'm not going to recommend them till later because their relevance will come out as we go through. So let's do a quick recap. So we looked at last time, or I think, no, the time before last time, how in Judaism, before the New Testament, they had this concept of the present age and the age to come, and there was a kind of a sharp antithesis between them. They were so different, and they were, they were split by some intervention that God was going to do. What that intervention was, they weren't exactly clear on, but God was going to do something, and it would result in this present age ending and the age to come beginning. And as I said, I think that they weren't just theologizing off in the wrong direction. They were accurately describing what the Old Testament prophets had taught. Uh, so the kind of things that mark the present age were sin, corruption, death, exile, Israel being subject to the nations, the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. The things that mark the, new, the age to come are new creation. We talked about new creation as God setting the world exactly right as it should be. Harmony, peace, life, um, resurrection, that God is going to restore his people from the grave, the restoration of his people, Israel. All nations flowing to become part of that people, Israel. The coming of Messiah, the forgiveness of sins, the kingdom of God, and the Holy Spirit as the agent of this new creation. But then last time we talked about how in Jesus' ministry, Jesus comes along and makes it all very um, wibbly-wobbly. I think I put it a bit more more politely on the handout. The neat antithesis between the present age and the age to come is ruined by Jesus' resurrection. Because when Jesus is risen from the dead... Now we've kind of got this strange situation where we're saying, okay, well, the new creation has kind of begun because someone's been raised from the dead. The Messiah has come, who's brought the forgiveness of sins, and he spends a lot of time in his ministry talking about the kingdom of God being a present reality. So where are we then? Are we in the present age or are we in the age to come? Because there's still a lot of sin and corruption and death and exile, and Israel's still subject to the nations, and the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. So quite how is this working? And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Now and not yet, or already and not yet. People call it different. If I say now and not yet, that's the same thing as already not yet. Just different people use different phrases in different books. So I kind of want to start with a question. You can either respond straight back to me or you can think about it and then answer, or you can talk to the people on your table. And that is, has death been defeated? Yes, I've, I'm hearing more. I'm hearing a lot of yeses. Is is there anyone want to dissent? Yes, but also maybe not yet. Fair enough. Uh, I think. Well, I hope that this will kind of help with that because I think. This is a really, this is, well, that might sound just like a question that I'm throwing out there, but actually the answer to that question, has death been defeated, is kind of what Christianity is all about. So it's actually really helpful, and I think the answer is more complicated than yes or no, but not too complicated. But let's, let's get into it. So one of the problems with Jesus is that 
well, not the problem with Jesus. The, one of the problems with Jesus rising from the dead, which again isn't a problem, but what it does for the theology is, as I say, it blurs that line between the present age and the age to come because the resurrection, the event, was never supposed to be one person. We talked about this last time. It was supposed to be all of the people raised, and it was the beginning of the age to come. And so Jesus being raised from the dead caused us to go, okay, so the new creation has begun, the resurrection has begun in, in, begun in some sense. And we talked last time about how Paul uses this language of first fruits and the rest of the harvest. It's not that there's two resurrections, but there's one resurrection that has begun in Jesus. And so this quote from N.C. Wright I think is really helpful. The resurrection of Jesus does not offer itself as a very odd event within the world as it is, but as the utterly characteristic, prototypical, and foundational event within the world as it has begun to be. It is not an absurd event within the old world, but the symbol and starting point of the new world. The point here is that what begins the new creation, that begins the age to come, is the resurrection of Jesus. But, as we can say, clearly the present age hasn't finished yet. So not all, the char- not all that characterizes the age to come has arrived. There's still plenty of death and sin and corruption and all those kind of things that happen. So we need a new model. There's a, there's a tension. And so this is what the New Testament does. Is it, it takes this model and it goes, okay, this is generally correct, but here's the thing. It's been split. There's now this overlap period, right? So what begins the age to come is Jesus' resurrection. So we can say concretely, in a sense, the age to come has begun because the resurrection has begun, because the forgiveness of sins has been brought in, because the Messiah has come, blah, 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 blah. But what ends the present age is the second phase of the resurrection, if you like, the rest of the resurrection. All the, to use Paul's language, the resurrection harvest. The first fruits has come in, that's begun the age to come. And the full harvest is going to end the present age. And so what you can kind of see here is that it, it leaves this little strange period in the middle where the age to come and the present age are not kind of neatly divided, but for a time are running concurrently with each other. So actually what this kind of creates is this kind of tension period where the age to come has a we don't, we don't say, no, it's still future. But we also don't say that the present age is just in the past. We could say that the, the, the fullness of the age to come is still future. But there is a sense in which it's begun, right? So you can call it the already not yet period. This is what we're calling it tonight. The last days, that's how the New Testament talks about it. So uh, just a reminder, you know, Hebrews 1 Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken through his son. Or Peter in Acts 2, talking about how Jesus has risen from the dead. And he says, this is what the prophet Joel prophesied. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit. So they, they're clearly saying the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead means that we are now in the last days. We're in this overlap period. So we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. You can call it the kingdom era. Sometimes you might read a book and they talk about the kingdom era. They're just talking about this period where the the kingdom of God is growing and becoming a a full reality. You call it the church age. Again, you, you might find any of these phrases being used, but they're all talking about the same thing. We are acknowledging that there's this strange overlap period between the age to come and the present age. And I think this is really, really important for understanding uh, New Testament eschatology, a New Testament understanding of what's going on in the world. So two analogies which I think are really helpful. Think about D-Day. Y- y- if you said, what, at what point was World War II won? You, you could say D-Day. But if the Allied forces have landed on the beaches and are now pushing back, you, could, you may as well say, well, the war is basically won. It, it's so inevitable that there's a sense in which it's already a reality. But it wasn't until a few months later with VE Day that the decisive victory had actually manifested. So it was one in principle and then it was one in actuality later. 
And those two events aren't to be divorced as though they just happen to kind of go in that order or, you know, well, D-Day was good, but actually I care more about V-Day. It's actually that, well, one led to the other. So in the same, in the same way, we kind of had D-Day in the resurrection of Jesus and we have V-E-Day in the resurrection of um, everyone else. Or this is the one that we talked about a few months ago. I think this is really helpful. You think about Israel... When they've been in the wilderness for a long time, they're talking about, oh, here we are dwelling in the wilderness, dwelling in the wilderness, we're on the borders of the promised land. When they actually do enter into the promised land, they enter, they, they cross through the Jordan, they set up the stones. There's this real sense amongst them. You read in, in uh, Joshua that they're going, oh my goodness, we're in the land. But it's also like, well, so what? Because it's occupied. It's not until the end of Joshua where they're actually settled in the land. And so in the same way, them leaving the wilderness into the promised land, at the first stage, they may as well still be in the wilderness. But them entering, them crossing that Jordan River was also a, an epoch shift. It now begins what is going to end in them dwelling in the land securely. So I think that really kind of sums up this kind of already not yet tension. So so come back to that question I started with, well, there is a sense in which we say, no, death has not been defeated yet. But also we say, well, actually it has. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection is D-Day. Death has had its uh, kind of, its death, its execution date is now settled and secure. And there's no turning back from that. But death is obviously still has power because we still know lots of believers who die and as far as I know are still dead. It's not common at least for Christians to come out of the grave. So there is a sense in which we recognize it hasn't been defeated but there's also a sense we recognize it has. It's not that they're kind of contradictory but we accept both at the same time. It's that we recognize that there's a kind of an unfolding going on there. Does that, does that make sense, that kind of tension? That Already not yet? Cool. I think that's really, as I say, really important. I think if, if we understand the already not yet distinction, it opens up so much Bible for us. Because it makes sense of all the times where they speak in very, um, I don't know how to describe it, it not triumphalistic, very... Uh, Language which sounds almost idealistic or very present. So Jesus talking about the kingdom being now and healings and, and those kind of things going on, which you think, well, hang on a second, I thought that the kingdom hadn't come yet. Well, there's a sense in which it has, there's a sense in which it hadn't. Um, yeah. Okay. So I think it'd be really good then. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, so before we move on, so that you see the age to come is then coming in two phases. There's the already side of the age to come and then there's the not yet side of the age to come but it's it's still the same thing i think i think i'd use the analogy of uh there's this there's this continuity to it so it's the same thing but it's in different phases i use this analogy with lots of different things but so you might have heard me use this before but i might say uh, evangeline is not the child i brought home from the hospital and you might say yes she is and there's a sense in which we're both right of course she is, but also she really isn't. So the age to come is the same age to come as we will enjoy for eternity, but there's a sense in which right now it's in this overlap phase. So I, I hope you find that helpful, and if that's more confusing, we can talk about it more. But yeah, so let, let's talk about, okay, well, what is already and what is not yet? Because I think it's really healthy that we don't, uh, we're going to talk about this in a minute, that we don't swing too far to one side. So we do want to take seriously the fullness of what God has brought in. I quite like the language people use of God has um, forced the future into the present. He's kind of brought it back. I like that way of thinking about it. So what has God brought from the future into the present? Uh, well, the Messiah. That's a pretty big deal. When you're reading through the Old Testament prophets, just see how magnificent the prophecies are that describe Jesus and describe the Messiah coming. We, we spent a whole session looking at the promises of the king, you find. So we can say pretty confidently that is an um, age-to-come promise, and yet we say, I know him. That's pretty cool. The resurrection of the inner person, right? Uh, that language might sound a bit strange. Let me explain what I mean by that. 
you might hear people talk about... Well, no, let's, let's read this passage in John first, and then I'll give an explanation. Could someone open up John chapter 5 uh, and read verses 25, 26, and 27? This is Jesus talking. Okay, thank you, honey. So, I say to you, an hour is coming when the dead will hear, so the dead, and those who hear will live. So the hour is now here when the dead are hearing and live. It's not very controversial to say what Jesus is talking about here is kind of spiritual death. And when we hear Jesus, when we respond to him, we've, we've passed from death to life. So think about Ephesians 2, it says, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, but you've been raised to life in Christ. There's this change in us. We've been resurrected. And I think it's really important to stress, when we say spiritually resurrected, we don't mean non-literally or metaphorically. When, when Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your sins, it's not just saying you were really bad. It's actually saying there was something in you that was actually dead. You were unable to turn to God. And you've actually been brought to life. It, it may not be a physical resurrection but it is nonetheless a real resurrection it's not just a metaphor um the reason i say of the inner person and i'm going to just go against ex the sentence i just said was that if we refer to the resurrection that that we've just read about in john 5 as spiritual it leads us the fault is on us because it can lead us into confusion because in 1 corinthians 15 which we're going to look at later when paul describes the body that we will have at the resurrection and the body that he describes is thoroughly physical and has properties like Jesus had being able to eat and so on. The word that he uses, which he considers the most appropriate word, is spiritual. So, and Paul doesn't mean by that non-physical. So the problem is if we talk about a spiritual resurrection and a physical resurrection, we're actually we, we make a, um, a rod for our own back when we then get to 1 Corinthians 15 and think, oh, I know what it means by spiritual resurrection. Hang on a second. It sounds like he's talking about the physical resurrection. You, you see what I mean? So I'd much rather use the language of 2 Corinthians 5, which is there, where Paul says, our outer man is wasting away, but our inner man is being renewed. So our inner person has been resurrected. But if you look on the not yet, we celebrate the resurrection of our outer person. Could we just jump over? I mean, I know this is jumping on the other side of the table, but on that other side of the table there in, in John 5, 28, 29, the verses that come immediately after what we just read, could someone else read John 5, 28 and There we go. So in the verses immediately before, Jesus says, a time is coming and now is where the dead are hearing me and live. But a time is coming yet when those in their tombs will come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who evil to the resurrection of judgment. So there is a present resurrection that happens now when we respond to Christ, which is, if you like, a preview of the final resurrection where our our bodies join us in that raising. So resurrection of the inner person, resurrection of the outer person. So that's an, that's an already and a not yet. Now again, this is just like the D-Day V-Day thing. Notice how these are linked. It's not like they're just kind of separate things. Oh yeah, there's a resurrection of the inner person over here and there's a resurrection of the outer person over there. The resurrection of the outer person is the fulfillment of what's going on in us right now. So we can say with Paul, our inner person is being renewed, hallelujah, thank the Lord, our outer person is wasting away, but we don't say, and I don't really need this outer shell. What we say is, and I can't wait for the day, the, the very next thing Paul says in that passage, where our outer self joins in with it, and we get our new bodies. So there's an already and a not yet. 
uh, if we jump back onto the already side, the Holy Spirit being poured out. I mean, we talked about this before, but I mean, this is a, a huge thing that we can just kind of gloss over. God has given us his Holy Spirit. Why would he do that unless he were trying to say something about this period that we live in being this, you know, age to come period. This is very significant. This, the Holy Spirit has always been tied to God's final promises to renew the world. And we say we've got the Holy Spirit. Wonderful. Um, God's people being restored and gathered from every nation. Again, you, you read through the prophets and how many times they talk about the fact that God is going to bring people in from every nation. All the nations are going to flow. Believers being seated in heaven. By the way, do stop me at any point if you have any questions about these. I want to talk about them further. As always, deep dive is fully interruptible. Um, in Ephesians 2, it says this phrase, which I think we can either gloss over or just n- n- kind of say, well, I don't know what that means, so I'll move on. But in um, Ephesians 2, 6 and 7, it says, He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's a really strange thing to say, Paul. Because what, what he's saying is, in bringing us to him, in, in giving us faith, in a sense, spiritually, we are seated in heaven. So there's a sense in which we are alive now on earth, but we're also in heaven in some sense. I don't know what that means, but it's definitely eschatological. It's definitely an already side of the age to come. So, yeah, we're seated in heaven. Didn't you know? Um, Was that? No, okay. Power of sin defeated. I mean, we're going to talk about this one in a minute. But yeah, there's a sense in which sin's power has lost its hold over us in the already. Before we move on from the already, can we just look at that 2 Corinthians 5 reference quickly? This is, this is a, a passage which um, there's actually a lot of debate over the best way to translate it. None of them are kind of dead wrong. It's more just emphasis. But you probably all know the verse. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Okay. So before we talk about the discussion with translation, just, just hear that phrase. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. When Paul says that, he is kind of appealing to this whole system that has uh, preceded him and, and he's thoroughly immersed in. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. This is an eschatological statement. This person is a statement that the already has broken in, that the new age has broken in into the now. So you, me, every Christian you meet is an evidence that God has launched the age to come. That is every bit as miraculous as the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. The the debate over translation is that there is no he is in Greek. So if you were to do this word for word, which is generally not a good thing to do with translation, but if you were to, it would say, if anyone is, whoever is in Christ, new creation. And so the debate over translation is whether or not it should be something like, um, for the person who is in Christ, behold, new creation. In other words, Paul is saying, this person believes in Jesus, that's evidence that God has broken in and is launching this new creation. It could be he is a new creation because sometimes the he is in Greek doesn't get included. What's called a, if you want to know, an implied copulative. Um, but the, the point is that, yeah, I, I bring that out because that ambiguity may well prove that, well, not prove, it helps us point to see that Paul's more broader point is God's big plan in the age to come has dawned in the now in some sense. So, brother, sister, fellow believer, you are evidence of God's new creation power at work in the world. I think it's in this same passage, or maybe it's in the chapter before, actually, that Paul even compares a believer believing in Jesus with Genesis 1, where God says, let there be light. I mean, that's the same kind of thing. God spoke light into darkness, and light there was. 
He spoke light into the darkness of our hearts and light there was. Yes. Pardon? <laughs> as it, <laughs> I see, as in the present age, indeed. Well, that cancels tonight then. Thanks, Ben. No, um, I think the, the, the point there is more generally that there is a sense in which we say, yeah, that the old person is gone in the sense of we're dying to sin. And it's, I would just jump on this point, though, and say that that is really helpful for thinking about, um, we're not going to talk about this tonight, but sometimes people say things like, is God going to destroy this world and make a new one? Because Revelation says, a new heavens and a new earth. But the problem is that would be very out of character for God. Because even though we say we're new creations, at the same time, I'm still very much the person I was. It, I, if I just use that Evangeline from the hospital analogy again. So it, it was truly Joshua who was saved and transformed, and it truly is me that's new, but I'm also still a sense the person that I was. It's just that God is at work of removing the old from me and uh, bringing the new. But uh, yeah, no, I think, I think it's totally fair to say in a sense, the old has passed away. That's a, an already, I think that's in keeping with that kind of already not yet tension. In the same way we can say, death has been defeated, in principle, and it will be defeated in actuality. The old has gone, in principle, but not maybe in, in actuality. But um, I've, not, I've not yet met a Christian who is satisfied with their spirituality. If you know what I mean. It's, it's funny. It's always the Christians who like have the, the most amazing prayer lives. Who are like, oh my goodness, I wish I prayed like you. Who say, I wish I could improve my prayer life. <laughs> and it's often the Christians who I kind of most look up to who have the most to complain about their, um, their spirituality. So yeah, I, I, I agree with Paul. The old has gone. I'd maybe just add in brackets in principle. Okay, um, so not yet. So we talk about there's an already to the, to the age to come, but there is still a not yet. We are still waiting for God's full justice to be poured out. Now, the reason I've paired this with the Messiah is because the Messiah, as what we just read in John 5, Jesus has authority to judge, and there's a sense in which he has come to judge. And that judgment has had an already side to it already at the cross, but we are still waiting for the final judgment where all sin, even of our own, is dealt with. So either, either sins will be forgiven at the cross or be punished on the day of judgment. And what that looks like, we will talk about next time. If you like learning about hell, see you in a month. Two months. Um, yeah. So that's a not yet thing. And you, you find Paul in Romans 14, uh, 13 and 14 dwelling on this kind of what does it mean to, no, 12 and 13, sorry. What does it mean to kind of wait for God's judgment and justice? Well, it kind of means holding back because we know it's not come in its fullness yet. There is still more justice to come. And so, again, you get this in 1 Peter, this whole notion of we can entrust ourselves to the judge who will judge justly. Get resurrection of the outer person, we talked about that. Uh, we're going to talk about this more next time, but 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 is a treasure trove if you want to read more about the resurrection of the outer person. It's just such, they're such brilliant chapters for talking about it. The analogies Paul uses are brilliant. Uh, we're still waiting for the full restoration of creation, which the Holy Spirit is, is going to bring about. So we haven't got to the point of Isaiah 11 where a, child, a child can go and hang out by a cobra's nest and not be worried or stick their hand in the nest of a viper where the lion and, uh, the, sorry, the wolf and the lamb can lie down together. So we're still waiting for that. We're still waiting for all nations to be serving God. I mean, I love the statistic. Did you know that since the year 2000, the population of the world has been growing by 1%? And since the year 2000, the population of Christians has been growing by 2%. So Christians are growing at twice the rate of the world. Isn't that fantastic? Pardon? Pardon? Yes. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Christians are growing in mass. <laughs> yes, the mass of Christians. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know how maths works. Don't ruin my, don't ruin my statistic, Ben. Uh, no, because it's 2% every... No, worldwide. Yes. You'll have to explain to me how maths works, because... Uh, but, uh, yeah, but nonetheless, we can still say that clearly all the nations aren't serving God. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's been said a few times that in 20 years' time, China's going to be a Christian country. Be fantastic. But I can't really think of one nation which stands out as kind of a God-glorifying nation. But nonetheless, the Bible says that in the age to come, the nations, as nations, will serve God. It's, it's very important that we don't kind of collapse the age to come into just, oh, there won't be nations anymore. There will. Even in Revelation 21 and 22, there's still nations, but those nations are all going to serve God. So that'd be good to see. We don't see it yet. We do see plenty of people in those nations serving God, though. Uh, reigning with Christ. There is a sense in which this is true already, that already not yet. So there's a sense in which we reign with Christ as we're seated with him in heaven. But there's a very real sense. Paul says to the Corinthians, do, not, do you not know that you will judge angels? And I think many of us would say, no, we didn't know that. Uh, but that is a part of the age to come. We will be reigning with Christ. We'll be judging alongside him. And finally, the one I think I look forward to uh, greatly is full conformity to the image of Christ. Uh, no longer that wrestle with uh, your sinful nature. No longer that. You think about all sin really is a battle of affection. It's always about choosing something that you want more. So whenever you sin, you are sinning because you want to do that thing more than you want to honor and love God. Well, I think that's a challenging thought. And in the new, in the in the the not yet of the new creation, we will be able to say with confidence that we only love doing the things which glorify God, and so we will only choose those things. I like what Augustine said. He said, "Love God, and then do what you want." It's like it's in it's in the Psalm, isn't it, where it says, um, "Set your heart upon the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart." Yeah. If, you, if your heart is set on God, that's a desire that he delights to give. So we still wait for that, that full conformity to the image of uh, God, image of Christ. So yeah. Okay. I want to get practical now. Is that all right? Can we get practical for a bit? Does everyone have a sheet with the Bible readings? Hopefully. Um, if you recognize where these comes from, uh, don't tell everyone else. That's fine. You, I, what I want us to do is suggest that I've given a passage. It's not the fullness of that passage, so there's not like, it's not like one verse. I've kind of chopped and changed. All I want you to do is to read the passage and then think to yourself, did the person who write this have their foot more in the camp of the present age or of the age to come? Feel free to discuss it in your groups. If you come to a group consensus on all three of them, that will be even better. If you only do it by yourself, that's fine. But... Uh, yeah. Should we should we bring our conversations in? Okay, what do we what do we think? Give me some give me some feedback. Go on, Henny. Yep. Okay. 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 Does anyone Put your hand up if you agreed with that general consensus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. Fair enough. They're all. They're all middle. Okay. I like that. Yes. Fair enough. No. I. I does anyone know where these readings come from? Yeah. Uh, before, I, before, actually, before I do the big reveal, does anyone see, can, can people see why I've kind of put these side by side so you can kind of see how they seem to have a difference? Right. Well, then the time for the big reveal. These are all next to each other. These are Romans 6, Romans 7, and Romans 8. 
The point is, the reason why we've called the section living in the tension is that what this breaking in of the age to come means is that's exactly what it is. It's a tension, which means sometimes it's going to look like a focus on one more than the other. Unfortunately, this has led some uh, interpreters of the Bible, uh, of Romans, to I think completely misunderstand Romans 7. Because what people do is they read Romans 7 and they read Paul talking about, I keep doing the things I don't want to do and I'm, I keep giving in to my sinful nature and I'm a, I'm a slave to my flesh. And then they get to Romans 8 and they read Paul saying, uh, live in step with the Spirit, be free, have victory over your sin. And they go, well, therefore Romans 7 can't mean that. And you get some people who say Romans 7 is Paul describing his life before he became a Christian. And Romans 8 is where he's describing the Christian life. I just think it, it, it's not right. I mean, the, there's a number of issues. One being, he's using present tenses all the way through Romans 7. But in Romans 7, he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Right? So in my inner, that same language we used earlier, that in my inner person, I delight in God's law. But then in Romans 8, he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if Paul is saying, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, and then in the very kind of next paragraph saying, and the mind that's outside of Christ does not love God's law, it does not submit to it, what we're saying is that therefore Romans 7 cannot be his pre-Christian life. I think a, a much more helpful way of reading it is that Paul is describing this tension. And there is this tension. Some days we're like, yeah, come on, age to come, I've got the Holy Spirit living in me, I'm, I'm, I'm not a slave to my sinful nature, I'm, I'm a conqueror, I'm, I'm going to, you know, sin is not going to have dominion over me. And sometimes we just look at ourselves and we go, why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? And this isn't kind of us having schizophrenia with ourselves or our, or our Christian life, this is exactly what it looks like to live in this tension of the already and the not yet. I mean, Romans 6 begins by, by Paul saying, we're raised spiritually and we long for and we await our raising in the not yet, our, spirit, our physical raising, our, our, our new bodies. Romans 8, Paul talks about how, um, yeah, we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. So it says, um, uh, yeah, for the, actually, let me just read this whole section because I want to talk about this a bit. The creation was subjected to futility. This is in Romans 8, chapter 20, uh, verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, I think this passage is so important. The, the first thing I want to say there is when Paul talks about that groaning of creation, he's saying that image of being in childbirth groans as the groans of childbirth. When a woman is in childbirth, that means the time of her pregnancy is coming to an end, but it means that the baby is not quite here yet. See how perfect this is in an analogy. The baby is on the way, but it's not here. And so there's a sense in which creation is groaning because it longs for the new creation, but it's not there yet. It's the tension point. But then he says, and we ourselves also groan inwardly with groanings too deep for words. Sometimes this passage is read as though what Paul is talking about here is the gift of tongues. I believe in the gift of tongues, but that's just not what he's describing here. What he's talking about is the fact that we're just in this tension point, and we groan like creation groans. We don't often have words to describe this frustration. But then he says, as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So that resurrection thing comes out again and again. That's kind of so key to the not yet. But the point is, this whole, this whole section of Romans is Paul just laying down in practical terms what living in this tension looks like. So I think that's really helpful for us to do. If, if Paul did this and he said to the church in Rome, this is what you should do, we should do it too. So there's that kind of tension point in the middle. One of the things we have to do if we're going to live in these last days, and it's already not yet that tension, is we have to be aware of the danger of overemphasis on one or the other. So the first danger is if you have too much of the already, what are your expectations? 
I mean, I, let me just check that out there. What what kind of errors do you think you could fall into if you put if you put too much emphasis on the already? Perfectionism. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. A, a kind of cavalier attitude to sin. People who think that they can't sin, you know, well, pride comes before a fall, as the Proverbs say. Absolutely. So, uh, one of the things I've done, I've put here, which I'll go on to, and because it's relevant to that, you, you see these televangelists in America, right, you know, just expecting healing as the norm. So much of an emphasis on already. If I just pray, someone's going to heal. And if someone doesn't get healed, oh, you didn't have enough faith. You know, it's, as you say, it becomes a way to victimize someone, and you end up with people going, well, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Well, the problem is, the, the problem isn't with you. The problem is that we're not at that stage yet. With us, that's too much already. Which I think that is exactly the problem with the prosperity gospel. If you think about what the prosperity gospel teaches, you can have a very comfortable life. You can have uh, wealth. You can have uh, no issues with your health anymore. Be completely set free. None of those things are bad things. They are all promises that are reserved for the new creation, though. What they're not promised for is this side of it. And so when they are promised, when they, well, when a human promises them on this side and is not able to deliver them, it causes hurt and manipulation and all sorts. And it, funnily enough, the only people who seem to actually cash in on these promises is the, the, the leaders of these movements who live in massive mansions while people who are funding them remain poor and sick. Um, but they still get away with it. You also get that whole notion of kind of we've already arrived. So in 2 Timothy 2, let me turn there really quick, Paul has to deal with this, this issue because in the Greek world, saying that we're going to be raised from the dead is just horrible. Why would you want this horrible, ugly flesh bag that we live in to come back to life? And Paul has to deal with these people who, so in 2 Timothy 2 verse 16, it says, avoid irreverent babble. It will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth and are saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Um, so th the point is that very early on you have these people saying, oh, the resurrection's already happened, and therefore what they meant by that is, well, the resurrection isn't this kind of grand future bodily event. It's kind of this spiritual feeling, or you know, I've moved up in the world. You it was a way of kind of making these two uh, classes of Christian. Oh, you're a, you're a normal Christian. I'm a resurrected Christian. Um, which is just obviously not right. If they had a healthy dose of not yet, then they would have realized, no, the resurrection is still future. Uh, uh, this is actually the, the same issue in the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, you've got these people who are, say, speaking in tongues or prophesying and are using it as a way of putting themselves over those in the church who don't, which is why this is a brief aside, but I think worth making. 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter about love, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, is so often misunderstood. In chapter 12, Paul spends all the time talking about the spiritual gifts and how they're to be used to help the church. Chapter 14 talks practically about in the church, when do you use tongues, when do you use prophecy. Chapter 13 is often treated as this just kind of strange digression that Paul makes about love but the central point of that chapter is he say tongues will pass away prophecy will cease but love will continue the point there is the spiritual gift par excellence the gift that shows the world that the new creation has broken in is love and how we demonstrate it to one another it doesn't matter if you can't speak in tongues it doesn't matter if you prophesy do you love and so that the whole point there is that that's kind of the that's a really big kind of already thing for Paul um that actually was a digression. Paul wasn't digressing. Okay. So that overemphasizing the already can be damaging and can hurt people. What about if we overemphasize the not yet? What does that lead to? Unbelief. Can you unpack that? Yeah. 
Mm. Almost, do you mean by that like a kind of almost a lack of expectation that we've missed the boat? Yeah. That's good. Pardon? Lack of hope. I thought you were just saying hope as in they, people might end up with hope. <laughs> How awful. Yeah. Lack of hope. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, I can't, I mean, it's just a silly example, but someone at my old church, well, this is when I was a teenager, I was at New Day as a youth, and one of the two of the youth leaders was squabbling. One of them was, but he was, he was being facetious, he wasn't being completely serious, but he hadn't put something in the recycling that should have gone in the recycling. And another youth leader was saying, you need to recycle. And he's saying, but it's going to be a new home the new earth anyway, so you can do what you like. And he, he was joking, but nonetheless, you do kind of get that attitude of, well, it doesn't matter, because... Yeah. yeah. Um, something that concerns me, that I talk to a lot of people who tend to treat Jesus' first coming and what he achieved as though pff, what we're really waiting for is the second coming. Uh, you know, that will be when everything gets good. And I think, yeah, the second coming is going to be great. It's going to be Jesus bringing to bear everything that was promised. But let's not undervalue how much was achieved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We, we don't have Romans 6 to 8 without that. The resurrection is the thing, you know, the, uh, the, well, the first coming is huge, and we shouldn't undervalue that. Um, and what he's doing now is also um, kind of worth really dwelling on and reflecting on, I think. Uh, I think sometimes it can develop a kind of an escapist mentality. Can't wait to get off this world. I've I've been very public about my dislike of the doctrine of the rapture for the reasons that it's not taught in the bible for one but secondly because it comes from this kind of world god doesn't care about this world can't wait to leave it and and actually that's the opposite of what god calls us to be he, he calls us to be people who are engaged in this world and who are um, looking for that that um, new creation so an escapist or a kind of a head-in-the-sand attitude. In terms of personal spirituality, I think a, a, an overemphasis on not yet can turn us into, uh, when we talk about sin and repentance, just kind of miserly wrecks that are just so focused on our own falling short. And I think, so generally I would say, in our tradition as a charismatic church, we are very uncomfortable talking about repentance. We like Romans 8 a lot more than we like Romans 7. And I think, um, I think we're probably reacting probably quite well to a tradition that came before, which was very much, do you not know how depraved you are? Do you not know how much of a wretch you are? I mean, Henny and Jenny, we've talked about how, I realize I'm speaking for you now, but in your experience in South Africa, the churches are all just, you're all sinners, you're all sinners, you're all sinners. And I think this is very much not yet, because Paul does say some pretty outrageous things from that perspective in Romans 8 about being set free from the law of sin and death and, and so on. So to critique our own position, I would say we need to be probably more comfortable with Romans 7 and acknowledging we sin and we screw up every day and we need to repent every day and the confession of sin that the Bible talks about is still valid. But so long as it doesn't lead us into this hole where we can't look up above our own failings, we do need to accept God is doing something amazing at work in me and I actually can move on with the rest of my life um, because I'm going to walk in step with the Spirit. So again, it's that tension. We're not being called to go into one. So if you have too much not yet, I think you just turn into a miserly wreck with no victory over sin. And ironically, I think that actually does the same thing as when you become overconfident and think you don't sin anymore. You know, people, people who are just, I mean... Um, I have a friend who, whenever they were at their lowest in a particular sinful habit they were in, would always be when it got worse. Which is interesting, I think, because, uh, yeah, people who think they don't sin probably are worse, and people who think that they are nothing but sinners probably think, well, I may as well carry on. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's very true. Very true. 
<laughs> I'm saying that there's this really nice looking middle ground right there. Yeah. And if I find any of you aren't in equilibrium, <laughs> you're out. Yeah. No. Um, okay. And so I think, oh, yeah. And I think the other thing, if we're going to live in this tension, is that, and a part of this staying in that middle ground, is reflecting on the promises which are still before us. So I've got some books here. So these are some, these are some Christian bestsellers from over the year. Four Blood Moons by John Hagee. This was published, I think, in 2016. There was this report that there's going to be four blood moons in the next few years. And he, well, Joel says that the moon will be turned to blood. Therefore, there's these big things that are going to happen. The four blood moons have passed. Nothing happened. Was there a public statement of, I got that wrong? No. Has he kept all the money he made off the book? Yes. Interesting. Um, a book like March Hitchcock, Iran and Israel. You know, there's this obsession with kind of what's going on in the Middle East. Because when, when the Middle East goes to pot, that's when we know Jesus is coming back. Or my favorite, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. <coughs> which then the author did an updated version, why it's going to happen in 89. And then he did another one for why it was in 93. And then he gave up after his 95 edition. But my favorite quote that he gave was, um, the only way that my prediction is wrong is if the Bible is not true. I think there's some confidence. <laughs> Yes, but the, the reason why I bring these all up is that these are, this is not the stage that we're at. We are in that in-between stage where the next great event we have to look forward to is the return of Christ. There's not this kind of news-watching, newspaper-exegeting we need to be doing to kind of check out the signs of the times. I, I've said this, I've stressed this before, all of the signs which people typically talk about as signs that Jesus is coming back soon are from a chapter which is not addressing the second coming of Jesus. People talk about earthquakes, or wars, or famines, or things going on in the Middle East. Uh, so very clearly, these are signs that Jesus is talking about that describe the, the, the events that precipitate the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century. They have absolutely no bearing on what's going on in the news today. They are not what we should be looking at. What we should be reflecting on are the promises that God is going to bring about a new creation, that we are going to be resurrected from the graves, that our loved ones are going to be restored to us in new bodies, and that we will live eternally on the new creation with God. They are promises worth reflecting on, especially in that tension point of then thinking about, okay, how do I live my life today? How do I get involved with God's kingdom plans today? Not that we build the kingdom, but we build for the kingdom. So with those things said, before we finish off, I'm well, I've, we've still got another section to go. But with that said, I, I want to recommend these two books in particular. So, Surprised by Hope by Tom Wright. So, N.T. Wright, when he publishes academic books, which are long and lots of footnotes, he goes by N.T. Wright. When he publishes books which are nice, easy to read and accessible, he goes by Tom Wright. Because as we know, Tom is a much cuddlier name than N.T. <laughs> uh, this book is brilliant. It's also summarizing two books, one of which is 660 pages long, the other one is 918 pages long. So this summarizes two of his N.T. Wright books, but Surprised by Hope is excellent. If you just want to get a better understanding of what Jesus' ministry means for how we understand eschatology, where do we go when we die? So I'm going to re recommend this again next time for, for when we talk about where we go when we die. But then what is our ultimate future? Um, that, this is really good. And then this one, this is probably... This is probably one of the best books written ever. Which sounds like hyper... I know, it sounds like hyperbole. By Faith Not By Sight by Richard Gaffin. This one is slightly more technical. I would give that warning. But this is basically Richard Gaffin applying that already not yet structure to things that we often think about. So he says, for instance, um, justification, the being declared righteous in God's sight. We're very good at thinking about the already side of that. You know, I'm right in God's sight. But we're terrible at thinking about the not yet side of that. That I will be declared righteous publicly before a world at the resurrection. And then he says, and when it comes to sanctification, our inner on a, uh, ongoing moral renewal, we're very good at thinking about the not yet, I will be, perfect. And we're terrible at thinking about the already. 
And so he kind of just goes through, and it's just a, it's a brilliant exploration of Paul's theology and how it applies. Um, it's called By Faith, Not By Sight, by Richard Gaffin. Yeah, the gaff, as me and Andy call him. And then th- this one, I mean, this one is the most technical, so this is not for the faint-hearted. But The Foreworld is by Richard Gaffin, so the Pauline eschatology by Gerhardus Voss is Voss kind of going through everything that Paul has to say about eschatology, and yeah, very good. It was Voss who first drew that diagram that we use tonight of the two-age structure. The, the, the Pauline eschatology by Gerhardus Voss, V-O-S. I'll leave this at the end if you want to uh, have a look. But here we go, the first time that two-age structure diagram was ever put in print, right there. Okay, with that said, feel free to come and grab these books if you want to see them afterwards. Um, I'd recommend all of them, as I just have. Um, so, let's just finish by l- thinking about this. Uh, th- I think this is just one more modification I want to make. Um, when we think about this structure, so we recognize that the present age is still ongoing. We recognize it was l- that the new age was launched by Jesus being raised from the dead. Sorry. But, so there was kind of, if you like, a crisis point, an intervening moment. Jesus rose from the dead. And there's going to be this moment where Jesus returns and the dead are raised. It's fantastic. But are there any kind of relationship between those two and how we get from one to the other? And I think this is something that's often overlooked. We're very good at saying, well, the, 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 the not yet has not happened yet, which is true. And we're very good at saying we live in the already. But what's the relationship between those two? So if we could turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 26, uh, it would actually be quite good if we could read verses 20 to 28. Shall I do that just so I can guarantee that everyone can hear it? Because I know that sometimes there's some hearing problems in, in here with the echo. Okay, so I'll give you a few seconds if you're not there. But 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read from verse 20 to 28. It says this. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. That he is, that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So the, the, the point there is that Paul is giving a broad brush painting of that day when Jesus comes back. So he comes back having destroyed every rule, every authority, and every power. For he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. If I just ask this question, for Paul or for the New Testament generally, when did Jesus begin reigning? When he ascended to heaven, Peter preaches, he's now been seated at the right hand, enthroned at the right hand of God the Father from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. So the, the point is that um, the reign of Jesus is a present reality. It has been since the ascension. So when Paul says he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet, he's not talking about something that he's yet to do. He is currently reigning. He is currently putting his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated is death. And when he's done that, then comes the end. So, the point there is, if we think back to the D-Day, V-E-Day analogy, right? So, D-Day began the process which resulted in V-E-Day. But this is really important to, to get. They didn't arrive on the beaches of Normandy and then stay there. And then a couple of weeks later said, right, should we go get Hitler now? There was a mopping up operation, if you like. 
there was a going forward and pushing the front lines back. Not every battle was as victorious as the other, but generally there came a point where the front lines had moved to the point where VE Day was a reality. 1 Corinthians 15 is saying that the same thing is going on in, in, with Jesus. He currently reigns and is presently defeating his enemies. Now that means he's been doing it for the last 2,000 years. This is one of the reasons why I say, with not some confidence, with a, a drop of confidence, I think we're still in the period of the early church. I, I'm, I don't go with the trend of people saying, oh, you know, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. He might be. But if he is going to do that, he has a lot of enemies to defeat between now and then. Because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us he's not coming back until he's defeated them all. It's also one of the reasons why I just can't accept that everything's going to go wrong before Jesus comes back. So there's a process. He is, he is moving forward, defeating his enemies in this process of establishing the new creation. Uh, Paul quotes from one, uh, Psalm 110 here, which says basically the same thing. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So rule now with your enemies around you, but I'm making them your footstool. Or Acts 3.21. Peter says, heaven must receive him until the time that all things are restored. In other words, he's staying in heaven until everything's restored. Um, you could add to this Isaiah 9. We bring it out every Christmas. Uh, for us, a son, to, a, a son is given to us, a child is born, the government will be on his shoulders, and the increase of his reign, there will be no end. It's not just all kind of landed on at once. There's a progressive outgrowing. And so we, we well, Jesus himself says the kingdom begins like a seed, and it ends up like a massive tree. I, I realize I may be talking to the wrong age group, but there's a, there's a game that you've probably heard your children or grandchildren talk about called Minecraft. On Minecraft, you put a seed in the floor, and then you wait for a few minutes, and then it goes boom, and it's a tree. Now, obviously, real life is not like Minecraft. Uh, you put a seed in the floor, and then it comes as a little sapling, and then it gets a little bit bigger, and then it gets a little bit bigger, and then eventually it turns into a massive tree. Jesus says this is how the kingdom comes. So, I propose that we add one more line. Whoop! There is a progressive growth as we move from the present age to the age to come. Now, please don't take that line as me saying that that's an accurate description of kind of what it looks like or where we're at. It, it may well be. I, I sometimes use the analogy of like, if you watch this tide coming in, right, it comes in and then it goes out and then it comes in and then it goes out. And you might think, oh, it's just going backwards and forwards, but you stand there for half an hour and you realize, oh my goodness, it's at my feet now. The point there is that Christ bringing the kingdom gradually and progressively doesn't mean that every year, if you like, is going to be better than the previous year, that um, the church is going to be stronger in 10 years than it is today. There could well be massive setbacks, massive withdrawals. We don't know how far we are in God's purposes. You know, we might be 80% of the way through and God's going to do it all in the last kind of 20%. We might be around the corner. We might be still miles and miles away. The, the point is, so the line is not an accurate line. The point is simply that the day that Jesus comes back is not going to be radically different from the day before it. That makes sense. It's not like, you know, oil tankers are going to be on fire and there's just Armageddon and everything's terrible and then Jesus comes back and everything's made good again. No, there's a, there's a gradual growth um, of the kingdom. Any questions off the back of that? Or comments? Or Accusations of heresy. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things I often think is when people say, oh, well, you know, everything's going down the pan, it's often very focused on their neck of the woods. I mean, we are right to bemoan the decline of the church in the UK, but we should not take that as. Um, symptomatic of what's going on in the world. Church is growing enormously around the world, and it it's, you know, sucks that it's not going so well here, but um, yeah, so there could well be setbacks in one country and growth in another. Yeah, it, obviously, it's, God has done it before where there's been growth. I mean, the first 300 years of the church, it was just growth everywhere. 
So it's not out of the question that, you know, maybe God's going to bring revival in this country in five years' time and China will still keep growing at the rate that it is. Um, the point is that globally, God is building his, his church. Okay, let's do a quick recap and then we'll finish. Okay, so recap, the age to come has broken into the present, now exists concurrently with the present age. The already not yet tension should define the Christian life, giving a healthy balance to what we should expect and be thankful for in Christ. I added that thankful note because I think, you know, in our prayer life, we should be really grateful to God that he's given us his spirit, that we are no longer victims of our own sinful nature, so on and so forth, Um, but also give us more things to pray about. Um, And Christ is currently at work to bring about the age to come. I should have put in greater measure, I suppose, in and through us. Those are very important modifiers. In us, he's bringing about to a greater extent in us, but also through us, God wants his church to be the means of blessing the world. So, there we go. Thank you for coming.